Welcome to Here Comes Yesterday, a weekly 15-minute podcast full of useful memories for dealing with the world ahead with your host, Frank Corrado. Podcast 42, Not to be Forgotten. We all know that there is short-term memory and long-term memory. Older people, they say, are better at long-term recall, but no matter how old you are, there are certain things that happen in your life that are, as they used to write next to the picture in your high school yearbook, too good to be forgotten. We forget so much in our lives. I'm not talking here about the savant I live with who can remember a house she visited once in 1987 and what was on the dining room wall. No kidding, really. But, hey, that's not me or most of us, is it? We forget lots of stuff, but there are those moments that never go away, happy or sad. The day you found out your mom or dad or sibling died, the day you graduated from college, or the day he asked the big question, or the day your first baby was born. Here's a list, in no particular order, of things I remember long after. Number one, the first kiss. I'm not talking about the kiss your mom gave you, no. I mean the first time your lips met his or hers. A real smooch, as it were. I've seen a million first kisses in the movies, but it's the first real one you gave or got. That's the one you remember. I remember it, though I can't recall the girl's name. Now, there's often a misstep that happens before, like the, me as the preteen trying to kiss a neighbor girl and in the process crashing into a basement window, or trying to grab a smooch from my cousin's friend at a wedding when I was 13, those two made such a big deal about it. Finally, at age 15, away from the crowd, walking her home from church, would you believe, I just looked at her, leaned forward, and it was so juicy. She didn't flinch. And why did I never follow up with a date, or why can't I even remember her name? I'm thinking it might have been Lucy. But the red lips, the brown curls, the sweet, juicy connection, yes, it was the real first kiss, and boy, do I remember it. First car. When it comes to cars, my father was the best. When I think back, he always went out of his way to enable me as a driver and car owner. There weren't a lot of driving schools when I was a kid, but I could get a permit at 15 in Illinois, and he was game for teaching me how to drive stick shift, which was pretty common back then. And so when I turned 15, we started heading out to the empty parking lots on weekends where he, I think the word is impatiently, started the learning process with a quick lesson and then lots of swearing when I would turn the car into a bucking bronco as I learned the, the finesse of letting the clutch out. These poor, deprived children of today will never have to learn about left foot, right foot coordination, will they? Since my high school was three miles away from home and buses were few, that qualified me for a car for my senior year. The old man liked to get a new car every two years, 
and the one I inherited was a beauty, a 1958 Dodge hardtop convertible of black, yellow, and white coloring. And of course, it came with a 365 horsepower V8 engine. It was the kind of car no rational parent would ever let his kid drive. I generally tried to be a good driver, but I was also a kid and occasionally a dumb kid. Like the time I was driving a bunch of school chums in that Dodge and I ran a rail crossing gate and could have gotten all of us killed. Luckily, the big V8 engine got us across the tracks in time. I don't remember what happened with that car, but maybe I tried to forget it because I connected driving with that dangerous stupid moment on the tracks. The first time I was fired. Actually, I'm not sure which time I should list here. My father had a habit of firing my mother on a regular basis at our family garden center, but he always called her back the next day. The first time he fired me, I'm not sure for what, I remember feeling relieved that I'd finally gotten a day off during this busy spring season. But then the next morning, he casually asked, what time are you coming in today? So I don't think that counts. When I was in Vietnam about eight years later, the hillbilly captain I was working for started yelling at me for I don't know what when I was trying to load a large group of Montagnard tribesmen who worked for us into a truck, and I snapped back at him. That caused a serious rift that set me out to find a new job. His boss was also my boss and quietly took me aside to help me, even though the captain was trying to find a way to get me busted. There are other possible candidates here. When I was laid off from the news desk at Channel 2 TV in Chicago, it was a union issue that I had nothing to do with and they told me I'd probably be hired back in a few weeks. But the chance came up for me to go into government PR, and I decided to take it because I'd make as much money and not to have to put in so much overtime. In the early 2000s, I was bounced from three jobs in a row, you can believe it, because I'd spent 20 years as head of my own consulting firm and was used to giving advice instead of taking it. So, Maybe being fired three times in a row made a lasting impression that I keep to this day, by the way. Loss of innocence. That's the next one. What is it to lose your innocence? It's not always about sex. It can also be a realization about a bigger truth. The light bulb goes on. Maybe I should say it goes off. The bloom is off the proverbial rose. Life is never the same afterwards. It first came to me one evening when I was 13 again, and my father had taken me to some sort of carnival or street fest on the south side. I have no recollection as to why we went to this place. It was noisy, I do remember. And then the moment came. A young girl about my age was nearby, standing up on something. I could see her. And then... Out of her mouth came some of the most incredibly foul language I'd ever heard. Remember, I was a product of a Catholic school education. I was truly shocked. Nobody I knew spoke like that. Not even my father when he was furious. 
As I grow a little older, that kind of talk has become more familiar, unfortunately. But this young woman, a peer of mine, set me aback. After all, this was 1956. She was not only a kid, but a woman. Still, to this day, when F-bombs are part of casual conversations, I still vividly remember that moment. It burned a very deep hole in my memory. 1968. Back in the early 2000s now, I remember going to see a traveling exhibit at the Chicago History Museum titled simply 1968. It was one of, the, of only a few exhibits that I have been lucky enough to catch in my life that were really something. The others being the history of communism, which I saw in the early 2000s in a dusty upstairs room in Prague. Another being an art show at the Boston Museum of Art on American painting of the 19th century. Just an amazing show. And the third one in Washington, D.C., on the art and artists of Dresden, Germany. The 1968 exhibit, the main visual was a Huey helicopter that seemed to come out of a wall. Even more stunning was an illustrated calendar by month of the incredible events of that year. By the way, I encourage you to look up 1968 on Wikipedia. We're talking about a year in which Dr. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were both assassinated. Nixon was elected. Protests roiled the Democratic National Convention. The Prague Spring sprouted and was choked off by Russian. American troops battled with the Viet Cong at Kaesong, and My Lai Massacre showed the horrors of American atrocities in Vietnam. And then there was the Tet Offensive, where the North Vietnamese attacked Saigon on New Year's Day. The list of stunning events in that year goes on with major incidents and disasters. I was a witness to part of it, working in the Intel Operations Center for the Army Intelligence Command during the riots that followed the King assassination, then traveling through Czechoslovakia during the Prague Spring, then being in Chicago during the infamous Democratic Convention. It was a hell of a year. I won't forget it. And then winter week. I will always remember winter week. Many people fear the cold, such as we in the Midwest just experienced in January of 2024. The weather people are constantly issuing warnings, and depending on where you live, you really need to take them quite seriously. However, their job is to make sure they never underestimate a storm. In cities, especially here in the Midwest, it's never quite so bad. There are always trucks out there salting and scraping the roads. Transportation systems are generally pretty good. There are lots of stores that remain open nearby and neighbors are close. But in the country, things are a little sketchier. Distances between storms and help are longer. There are many wide open spaces. Where our farm is in southwest Michigan, storms come from the west and intensify over Lake Michigan. Yes, it's beautiful out there, but you feel less protected 
and often you're on your own, digging out your driveway, getting around your property on foot, and so on. Back in the mid-1980s, however, I spent a memorable winter week at an immersive outdoor education camp near a place you've probably never heard of, Tomogamy, Ontario, about 40 miles north of North Bay, Ontario. We came in on a single-engine ski plane. There, I learned to embrace the cold. It never got more than zero the entire time. We got our water out of a hole cut in the ice of a lake that the camp was on. We were out every day learning how to survive in a cold weather environment. At night, we'd gather and talk about the local ecology. We camped out and had a great time. There I learned the true meaning of the term three-dog night. I momentarily revisited part of that experience over the Christmas holidays this year, when the men of our family drove up to Snowy Mountain Ski Hill, west of Laramie, Wyoming, to introduce 10-year-old Freddie to skiing. I haven't skied since my early 20s, so I left that job to others who knew better. I felt a little guilty just standing around, so I rented a pair of snowshoes and trekked out into a nearby woods for a walk. Not a great idea. The trail was rough, the snowshoes didn't strap down correctly, and I was doing this at 8,500 feet of elevation. I lasted about 45 minutes. Too bad, because it was so beautiful there. I was never afraid, but my limitations were apparent for sure. A kiss, a kick in the pants, a fast car, a year that lives in infamy, a winter week in the woods. Each so different, so unforgettable. That's it for now. Bundle up. You'll get through it. This is Mel Zellman. Thank you for listening. And catch us next time.